Four Degrees to the Streets is designed to empower anyone curious about places and spaces, not just persons with professional degrees or backgrounds. Here we will cover a host of topics, including transportation, health, housing, and the environment through the lens of racism, classism, and sexism, and give listeners the tools they need to overcome institutional barriers. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod and tune in every other Tuesday where Nemo and Jazz keep it four degrees to the streets. Welcome back, everyone, to the Four Degrees to the Streets podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Um, before I get started, Jasmine, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Um, I just got back from vacation, so that's always exciting. And I always feel like I need a vacation after my vacation. So, but I'm getting back into the swing of things with work and everything. How are you? I'm doing well. I also went on a vacation earlier this month and then I promptly had to plan the next vacation afterwards because I was like, I don't, I need something, something to look forward to um, in these, in these times. I almost feel like I've been traveling more during the panty, but that's neither. That's neither here nor there. Nor there. (laughs) Wherever I'm going next, it's not there, it's not here. We will cross that bridge. Um, but today we will be uh, going through episode 10. So this is our season finale, our last episode. Um, and unfortunately, we're kind of ending it on a sad note. We're going to be talking about policies around traffic safety, um, how programs that apply to you know people walking, driving, um, taking public transit, any way you interact with the streets on a daily basis. Um, and it's a serious note because it impacts people's lives. People, um, when traffic safety things are not implemented, people people die. It costs people their lives. People get hurt. Um, but it's an important conversation. So I'm glad we're having it today. Um, but we do have some things to kind of look forward to as we think about what we can expect next season. So we're planning to come back in the fall, in the colder months. Um, we started season one in December. And uh, well, we'll probably come back a little bit before then. But just thinking back, you know, we've had a lot of Yes, we've taken the you know podcast in different angles. What was one of your favorite things about the about the season, Jasmine? Honestly, I really enjoyed our in-person episode. I wish that we lived closer so that all of our episodes could be in person. Um, but it was such a fun experience going to a space and being mic'd up with each other and like being able to feed off of our energy. So make sure you check out that episode. You can listen to it wherever you get your podcast, but you can also watch the episode on our Instagram page at the number four degrees pod as an IGTV video. Yeah, I I always think about our Black History Month series. I thought that was really cool. That was a chance we got to do two episodes um, with one with our first guest was Kristen Jeffers, the Black urbanist. Um, and then we had a Black business episode where we talked to Kira Hibbert, a real estate agent based in Philly. Um, we also talked to um, Brownwell Company based in Jersey. And then Bashira Ajiman with She Raps based in Louisiana. Um, and it was, you know, Jasmine and I kind of both pulled on our networks to talk to business owners that we knew, um, but it was, I think it was a really great and informative episode for people thinking about starting a business. Yeah, a lot of my friends commented on the video and were saying how they really appreciated the information that was shared in the episode, so I think that episode was probably one of my favorites as well. Yeah, I think, as Jasmine mentioned, um, 
hopefully in season two, we get to record in person more, um, diversify our methods, um, have more guests, talk about a variety of different topics, different formats. We've done kind of interview style. We did panel. We kind of did more collaborative as well. Um, we did one IG Live last season, maybe some more of those. Um, doing interviews or maybe on the street as people are getting vaccinated that may allow for some more human contact and you know different events that four degrees can be a part of and so those are some things to look forward to um, so this is our last episode feel free to go back you know communicate with us we'll be giving y'all updates and stuff during the break we won't completely go away but definitely feel free to contact us and stay in touch so today we're going to be talking about traffic safety, and that's a pretty broad topic, but we're focusing mainly on activities that happen on the street, whether that is people walking, people biking, people scootering, or people driving, or any other form of motorized or non-motorized transportation. And the purpose of this episode is to kind of give you guys, our listeners and our viewers, information about traffic safety policies and kind of the risk that exist when you're traveling across our nation's roadways. And so this is a really important topic because as Nemo mentioned, people can be injured, they can be harmed by just traversing throughout their own neighborhood even, especially when you're thinking of people that are the most vulnerable, such as pedestrians, and at that rate, elderly pedestrians. So first, we're going to introduce the topic with a lot of data. Um, always want to put the conversation in context of what's going on. So we're going to be pulling a lot of our data from um, this article developed called Dangerous by Design, and it talks about the ways that our roadways are designed, how they harm um, different individuals. And so they open up this research with studies from 2010 and 2019, getting this data from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, counting the number of pedestrian fatalities across the United States. And so that number has grown 45%. It's up from around 4,300 in 2010 to six. 6,200 in 2019. That's a really big number when you think about the number of people killed. That's the number of people killed as a pedestrian just by walking across the street or traversing to destinations that they have to get to. The top 10 um, most dangerous places to walk are all in the southern portion of the United States. They include states such as Florida, which I believe was number one, Texas, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, New Mexico, and a host of other states. Um, they also discuss the most vulnerable populations. So around um, two people per 100,000 are involved in a fatal pedestrian accident. When you look at the number of persons who are in different age groups, whether they're young adults, children, seniors, or older adults, seniors, those being age 75 or older, are the most at risk. Around three persons per 100,000 um, are at risk of being or, or were, were injured in a pedestrian fatality. And then they look at the census track in which the pedestrian fatality occurred because the data is all geolocated. And so you can identify the neighborhood. And so they found that three in 100,000 persons in low income census tracks, those where the median household income is less than $41,000 are struck and killed compared to less than um, 
one per 100,000 in census tracts earning greater than $90,000 with the median um, household income. They also found that minorities, including African Americans and Native Americans, are the highest at risk for being involved in a fatal pedestrian crash. And so the common kind of vulnerable populations, elderly, low income, and minorities are at risk and are observed by being the most injured and the most killed in a, a fatal pedestrian crash. So that just puts the data in, in context for the conversation that we're going to start to get into. And we're going to discuss how are the roadways designed that makes them dangerous. That's kind of the um, engineering element. We're then going to talk about education, how are drivers and pedestrians and all roadway users educated in traffic safety. We're going to talk about enforcement, which is what is the role of our neighbors and our police officers. And then we're going to talk about some evaluation strategies on how we measure um, either fatal pedestrian crashes or design or how we measure the way that we're doing our education. So when you, as you just described, there are ways that towns and cities are looking to address these really drastic, you know, impacts on people who are walking, biking, um, or driving as it comes to, to safety on the roadways. Um, the one thing to note about Dangerous by Design, um, that's completed by Smart Growth America, that at the time they were doing the report, 2020 data was not available and for walking. Um, however, as we think about 2020 and the pandemic, some places are on track to be to have some of their most, you know, um, dramatic increases in traffic fatalities and traffic injuries. And a lot of this is as a result of the pandemic, people were not as much on the roadways. And so people felt like that was a racetrack. People felt like that was a time to kind of drive dangerously. Um, and I think it also puts into context when you look at the numbers of people that are being impacted by unsafe roadway conditions and vulnerable populations. It really is a public health crisis when we think about it. And uh, you know, it's, there's really a call out there for policymakers and um, to, really, to really take this seriously. Um, but it's kind of, it's really sad when you look over time, like the, um, like the report does, to see that over time things are getting worse. So what are we doing? It's not working. We, can, we need to fix it. We need to address it. So the first part of this topic that we're going to discuss is engineering or road design. Um, we're thinking about them in terms of the four E's. So we use engineering. And that's about how is the roadway design that makes it safe or unsafe for drivers and non-motorized users. So just think about roads in your neighborhood or places that you travel that you would say you don't feel comfortable driving on or you don't feel comfortable being a pedestrian. What does that roadway look like? What does it feel like? And what are the elements that make it for you feel undangerous as a driver or as a pedestrian? And so planners and engineers have studied these things for many years to try to figure out what are the elements of roadway design that contribute to safety or the lack of safety. And there's this idea of the three Ds of walkability, those being density, diversity, and design. And so density refers to the number of things in a certain area. And so for our purposes, we talk about population density, how many people in a square mile, how many people in a block or a census tract. Um, land use diversity refers to the different types of 
uses in an area. I feel like we've talked about land use um, on this podcast before, but residential, commercial, office, recreational are all different forms of land uses. And so many neighborhoods are designed where all residential uses are in the same place and they're completely isolated either by a railroad track or a major arterial roadway or a highway from places that you would like to get to, schools, jobs, businesses, retail shops, even parks on occasion. And then there's roadway design. And so you wanna have those two elements. You wanna have a moderate to high population density and you wanna have land use diversity so that people can access different destinations in shorter distances. But the design of the roadway, it really talks about the quality. And so you can have a really well put together neighborhood in terms of density and land use diversity. But if there's no way to get from point A to point B, then it doesn't matter. So that's what design or engineering is all about. And so there are several studies that try to assess what are the elements that make roadways safer. Some of those elements include lighting. Most people don't feel safe walking or biking on a street in the evening when it's not well lit because it's difficult for you to see. The presence or absence of pedestrian crossings, having those crossings in convenient locations means it's safer for pedestrians to get across the street. The presence of bicycle facilities. If you're a bicyclist, most bicyclists prefer to have their own designated lane separate from vehicles so that in the case of an incident or an accident, there is a barrier separating them. And then there's barriers between pedestrians and moving vehicles. That might be something like a planting strip along the sidewalk where you see benches or trees or a bus stop. So some of the studies that looked at um, these things, and Nemo talked about it being a public health crisis, some of these studies are in journals such as the American Journal of Health Promotion because they recognize pedestrian fatalities are life and death. And if they're affecting certain vulnerable populations, that in turn causes it to be a health crisis. And so these researchers looked at six different counties in North Carolina to understand how much people are interested in leisure time physical activity or walking, not for the purpose of commuting, but for enjoyment when it relates to um, streetlights and public parks. And so the presence of streetlights and greenery increase people's desire to go on long walks around their neighborhood. That's a positive for their physical activity. And then People for Bikes, which is an organization um, advocating for safer bicyclist conditions in 2014, they commissioned a study where they um, surveyed around 16,000 people to understand their interest in bicycling across America. They asked a simple question, I would be more likely to ride a bicycle if motor vehicles and bicycles were physically separated by a barrier. And 44% of white Americans, 48% of black Americans, 53% of Hispanic Americans of any race, and 53% of those that chose not to identify their race agree with this statement. So that's demonstrating that people are willing to bike places and walk places if the road is designed in a manner that makes them feel safe. And then my final point on this is that researchers at Georgia Tech commissioned a study where they surveyed um, middle school students and asked them why or why not do they walk or bike to school? And 56.2% of them indicated that traffic or other street design challenges were reasons why they chose not to walk or bike to certain destinations because they felt it to be dangerous. 
So as Jasmine just went through engineering, um, this is going to be something that comes up throughout this episode of how it all really comes back to the way that the space is designed. Um, and I don't know if we we talked about or if we've introduced Vision Zero yet in this episode, um, but Vision Zero is a strategy uh, designed to eliminate all traffic fatalities and injuries. And so throughout the last few years, a lot of jurisdictions have taken on Vision Zero policies and Vision Zero programs to kind of have a framework of options they can use to address traffic fatalities and injuries in their town. And so there's going to be links to this in the show notes, but the thing to note is that there's no one size fits all approach. Um, and so there are a variety of different methods that towns can use to, to make conditions feel safer. And so to get at that question that people for bikes asked about wanting to feeling safer if vehicles are separated from them while biking um, is one of the things that Vision Zero strategy might say to implement. Um, and there's different ways of doing this, whether it's a protected bike lane, medians, um, I'm trying to think there's um, one of the one of the links has like visuals to the different methods of separating um, of ways you can separate the roadway. So it's a physical thing. And then a lot of them, you, they can even be short term. You can put barriers like concrete barriers, um, ballers, which are kind of like plastic. But these are plastic things that can move back and forth. Um, a lot of times you see like trucks will easily <laughs> maybe knock them over, but they can still create a perception of safety that can introduce people to trying a variety of modes where they may not have otherwise before. So why we're focusing on those different strategies is because we're seeing a lot of these um, crashes and fatalities occur on roadways that are absent of a lot of these amenities. They occur on roadways that are extremely wide. They occur on roadways that lack pedestrian crossings. They occur on roadways where the time to cross the street is too short. They might give you 15 seconds to cross a 60-foot wide street. They are occurring on streets where there is no bike sickle infrastructure and so the bicyclist is in the road with high traveling and high speed vehicles they are going on occurring on streets where there's no pedestrian um, infrastructure when you go to that dangerous by design article that we'll have um, linked in our study they have a series of pictures just graphics of people going out and crossing the street and Nemo and I are highly trained in capturing photos of people walking in dangerous areas just yes. to get the the context of what it's like. We traveled all across New Jersey, just taking pictures of different downtowns and different neighborhoods. And you see people have destinations they need to get to. And if you place the crosswalk a mile apart from each other, they're going to cross in the most convenient location, which might not, however, be the safest location. That's what you continuously see all the time. So the absence of the infrastructure doesn't mean that the people aren't going to travel that way it just means that you're putting them in harm's way to do so yeah and the big like separation and kind of divider that addresses engineering that i was forgetting about was roundabouts there's a lot of data to show really the science of a roundabout both slows down the kinetic energy of a car going into an you know it's a, a roundabout is a type of intersection but it slows the driver down it also just naturally makes them have to be more aware when they yield they know it's a roundabout they know a car could be coming they're going to wait and see um, a lot of roundabouts also have crosswalks built in at different sections and these are things that drivers are predicting and expecting so they're slowing down um, and so those that's just another example of really how the science science connects to um, the engineering. And so as we think back to some of these policies to impact that impact 
policies that can impact them both address traffic safety. Education is another one. And this is another theme that comes up through Vision Zero as well, different ways of educating the public. There's targeted outreach um, that some uh, jurisdictions have been doing. And so this might be, you know, putting in something that when someone gets a ticket mailed home, they can have a little, you know, uh, brochure inside of it that has some tips on safer driving. Um, there's newsletters that uh, jurisdictions can send out once they have the, you know, information of all the drivers um, in their, you know, drivers who register with that state. Um, there's additional training um, that sometimes will happen for people who are driving more often. So these could be taxi drivers, um, people who are doing commercial deliveries. Um, and, you know, part of it is to engaging stakeholders at all levels. Um, and I, when I think about education, I think a lot of it is a, a culture change. I remember growing up in Seattle, there was click it or ticket, you know, and so it just becomes ingrained in your memory from a young age. And so I think there's no better time to start really getting serious about all of these different things, because, you know, that may have been 20 years ago, but now for somebody like myself, I'm getting in a car and I'm putting in a, putting on a seatbelt. Um, whereas if we start now with whether it's, you know, slowing down and just making it a thing to know that you should drive slower um, as much as possible. Those are things that, and you know, making it catchy, doing some sort of programming that sticks in people's minds before they even have a driver's license or before they're even on the roadways. Speaking of before they have a driver's license, there was an initiative that came around. It was after I got my driver's license in New Jersey, but the driver's ed that some people go through in school or some people have to go through in a private session, starting to teach drivers how to um, interact with non-motorized users on roadways. Because a lot of drivers don't know okay, a bike is also traveling. How do I pass this bicycle? How much distance do I need to give this bicycle? Or I see a pedestrian waiting to cross the street. When should I yield? Is somebody else going to yield? And so a lot of driver's ed programs have been implementing or adding certain educational pieces to teach drivers how to have better manners, basically in real life, better manners on interacting with non-motorized users because we're seeing a lot more people walking and biking and scootering and this whole generation of micro-mobility. So we have to teach drivers how to be better um, users of roadways that they're going to be sharing with other, other travelers. Yeah, I think that's super important, especially if they didn't, are not growing up or maybe driving around places where there are infrastructure for people biking and walking, but maybe in five years there will be, or, you know, maybe in the next few months there will be. And so how do they accommodate that? That also reminds me, um, Uber and Lyft, they started something where, um, when you're getting, when you're about to get out of your vehicle, they would text you or have a notification pop up to say, Hey, watch out. There's a bike lane here. Make sure you're not just swinging open your door. Um, and I think that's a really good use of using technology to kind of do a mass campaign um, in that way. So yeah, the education options um, are endless, um, but it's again, just kind of one of the many um, options on this menu of things to address uh, traffic safety. And so the next E in our roll call of E's for traffic safety is enforcement. And so 
think about it in terms of scale. So the roadway is designed or engineered in a certain manner. And we teach drivers and non-motorized users how to safely share the road with each other. And then when traffic laws and traffic violations are not adhere to, we have enforcement. And that enforcement might come in the form of um, uh, the agency, the, the city might have a parking enforcement. So I think about the city of New Brunswick, they have New Brunswick Parking Authority, and they'll issue parking tickets to people who are parked, for example, in a bike lane, or who might pull their vehicle up on the sidewalk, different things like that. And we rely on our law enforcement officials um, to handle a lot of other traffic violations. And so in some places, there's automated traffic enforcement, which Nemo, being a resident of D.C., knows all about the cameras throughout the DMV area, catching people doing speeding or running red lights and different things like that. So that's the use of cameras and technology to identify, use sensors to identify how fast the vehicle is moving, to identify when the vehicle stopped or did not stop, and then issuing them a ticket um, moving forward in the absence of there being a police officer present. We talk about enforcement because there's um, certain traffic violations that can be dangerous. I mean, if you run a red light, you can run the risk of injuring a pedestrian or injuring another vehicle that is um, trying to trying to traverse the street. We're gonna get into some of the challenges related to enforcement, but Nemo brought up Vision Zero and they also have a component of enforcement in Vision Zero trying to protect drivers and pedestrians from violating um, certain traffic laws. I think you kind of covered it in terms of the ways that Vision Zero, um, in terms of the ways that Vision Zero applies to enforcement. Um, but again, as we're talking about all of these, you know, no one thing, no one enforcement strategy is going to address and make people automatically drive safer. You know, if the roadway is designed for them to speed because there's wide lanes, there's no crosswalks for miles, um, the lights are long and the crossings are short and the crossing times are short, they're going to speed. They'll get that ticket and they may or may not pay it, um, but it's not going to change their behavior. What will change their behavior is when they physically cannot, you know, do something. Um, and so I think enforcement is good. It can also be part of education. Um, you know, it kind of reminds us at times like, oh yeah, if I don't stop at this red light, but I kind of ease in to see if I can make that right turn. Sometimes you might in, you might endanger somebody who's crossing the street, depending on how that intersection is, is designed. So, you know, if they get that ticket in the mail, like when they see their car <laughs> across that line, that's a reminder of, oh, you know, I need to, I need to stop, you know, but there, again, there are physical things that can be done to bump out that curb or to time the light change to be a few seconds later and to let pedestrians cross first. Those are more permanent physical changes that can impact people's behavior. Um, and so as we think about enforcement and who is doing the enforcement um, and who is being enforced, as we think about um, black and brown people, whether they are in a vehicle, whether they are driving, um, whether they are walking, um, they are a lot of times, um, I don't think of the words to say it, um, there are a lot of times uh, being pulled over for another reason, and a lot of that is racially profiling them, um, and uh, the 
it, the main issue is that we should be enforcing behaviors that are actually dangerous um, instead of things that are, might be deemed as petty. Um, you know, speeding is dangerous, running a light is dangerous, but if somebody, you know, may have a, you know, tag that's expired and you're, you know, choosing to pull them over for that because they are also black. And then that leads to, uh, that leads to, you know, trying to search for criminal activity um, that leads to, you know, given other reasons to find them because of internal prejudice and racism. Um, and so, you know, even recently, as we think about um, the killing of Dante Wright in Minnesota, um, he was, you know, being pulled over for a traffic stop um, and that led to death. Or um, another example, a black army officer, um, Karnan Nazero was held at gunpoint and pepper sprayed. Um, and he was just being pulled over for not having permanent license plates displayed. And so again, those are things that are not addressing safety, but sometimes enforcement will use that as a guise to do other things against like racial profiling. I'm glad you brought up two points. The relationship between engineering and enforcement, the fact that you mentioned that if the roadway is designed to speed or designed for you to drive recklessly or even walk recklessly, that is what you will do because it is designed for that. And no amount of enforcement, I guess there's a certain amount of enforcement that you can use, but we should be working to improve the design and not relying so much on enforcement. Enforcement happens. Enforcement should be a last resort, not our first resort. And then you brought up the driving while black um, and how dangerous that really is. Black, in terms of traffic safety and education, everyone teaches their children, you know, when you're crossing the street, look both ways. Um, when you're driving, make sure that your license and your registration are in your vehicle. But Black people have to teach their children an extra layer of traffic safety because we have to teach our children. And I was taught, if you're pulled over for anything, and you might not even know what it is at the time, have all of your belongings out. Have them ready to present to the officer. Have your hands on the steering wheel. Address him as yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. And do all of these extra things to, to make him or her feel less threatened by you, even though you have done nothing wrong because your headlight is out because your license has expired or your tags are um, outdated that might be a threat to this officer and you have to de-escalate the situation just because of the color of your skin and that's a lesson in traffic safety that we're taught so that we can make it home from that traffic stop um there is another article that kind of uses the same um phrase driving while black they use the phrase walking while black this is a florida times union and ProPublica article and we'll have it in our show notes that talks about jacksonville florida and the number of pedestrian tickets that were issued to african-americans in jacksonville and so this is a five-year study on pedestrian ticketing between 2012 and 2016 they have a series of findings that I'll read at this time. Blacks received 55% of all pedestrian tickets in Jacksonville, while only accounting for 29% of the population. In total, there were 2,200 pedestrian tickets issued in the past five years that have not been resolved, which means that fines have been placed um, on people's driver's licenses, which can lead to warrants and other things like that. And then there were only 149 instances in which a pedestrian ticket resulted in some other form of criminal activity. And just 27 of those 
149 involved the person having a, a gun on them. And the share of pedestrian fatalities in Jacksonville spans both white and black neighborhoods. Jacksonville, Florida is one of the highest, I think, in that Dangerous by Design article. It's, it's in the top five most dangerous metropolitan areas for walking, yet blacks receive more of the tickets. And just some of the type of tickets that you can receive in Jacksonville include walking in the street when sidewalks are present, crossing the street diagonally, not crossing the street through the shortest route, I'm not even sure what that means and not crossing in the crosswalk or not yielding to a vehicle. And so the article goes through a series of conversations where they interview um, sheriffs and deputy sheriffs. And I suggest everyone goes out and reads the article, but they make several points. First, that pedestrian violations are being used to search people for potential criminal activity, which is very similar to the stop and frisk that New York City and New York State had implemented. Tickets are disproportionately being given to Black people, and tickets um, to pedestrians are being used to create safer streets. There's a quote in the article where um, someone from the police department notes that due to the lack of engineering and a lack of high quality road design, they're using enforcement to keep people safe. And that gets into a whole bigger issue of hyper enforcement on pedestrian activity and not a similar re re uh, receiving of tickets for drivers who are also engaging in dangerous behaviors. And so it's a, it's like, okay, let's target the pedestrian who's the most vulnerable user, but let's not address the behaviors that are going on with drivers. And so that article has a lot of conversations about racial profiling, about using the slightest pedestrian violation to then search a person or harass people. And when we think about how broken taillights or um, expired temporary tags lead to dead bodies, I'm just terrified to think about if I jaywalk, is that going to mean that I'm going to be dead on the street? Like, is it really that serious? Yeah. And I think that article, um, really it highlights what's happening in Jacksonville but it's Jacksonville is not an anomaly um, other cities have also been you know have having demands for them to publish their pedestrian violation data um, and the race of the people who were um, who were being enforced and it's a similar trend throughout to see that you know cities across the country are using the guise of traffic safety to um, to racial pro to, to engage in racial profiling. Um, and I think Jasmine brings up a point about focusing too much on pedestrians. It gets at some of the victim blaming that can happen in these conversations around traffic safety, um, because you're pitting someone against a 3000 ton vehicle with someone who, okay, maybe they looked down at their phone for a quick second. <laughs> like those two are not equal. Once someone's not gonna win. Um, and so I think it's important as we continue to all educate ourselves on ways to be safer as we're using streets um, to make sure that we are not placing blame unfairly. I consistently see, um, I'm a nerd. I follow a lot of DOTs and police departments on Twitter. And I consistently see when there is a pedestrian injury they always know the pedestrian was not crossing in a crosswalk. And a couple of other Twitter nerds that I follow consistently go to like the scene of the incident and find there was no crosswalk for the person to cross in anyway. And so that consistently gets into the relationship between 
enforcement and engineering and saying, okay, you didn't cross in the crosswalk, but you're ignoring the fact that the nearest crosswalk is two miles north of the destination I'm trying to get to. That just doesn't make any sense. And that's not an anomaly. The neighborhood that I lived in in Atlanta, the, I got off a bus stop and I had to cross two lanes in one direction, a 30 foot median, and then two lanes in the other direction to get to my apartment complex because where the bus stop was, the nearest crosswalk wasn't for another mile behind the bus stop. So I would get off the bus, walk behind the bus stop a mile, cross the street, and then walk back up to my apartment. That was unrealistic. That is unrealistic. I don't know how else to explain that. So I would stand at the bus stop, wait for two lanes of traffic going northbound to clear, dart across those two lanes, wait in the median, wait for the two lanes of southbound traffic to clear, and dart across those two lanes. And I could have gotten a ticket. And thankfully, I never have gotten a ticket. Thankfully, I've never been um, engaged with a police officer in that manner. But that is a reality that could have happened all because... I didn't have the capacity to walk an additional mile. And that might seem futile or, oh, you could have just walked a mile, no big deal. But if you think about a driver, if you're a driver, infrastructure is available for you everywhere. You can park five seconds from your destination. You can get out of your car and park right in front of the Target. You can get out of your car and park right in front of the CVS. It would be totally unrealistic for you, right, to drive a mile and then have to drive back another mile to get to your destination. That's the you gonna make thing. that U turn. <laughs> you gonna make that U turn in the middle of the street, exactly. Right. Whether you're allowed to or not. And it's extra tedious for a pedestrian because they're not in the comfort of their heated or their air conditioned vehicle. They're in the street in all of the elements, carrying everything that they have with them. And so the level of urgency is is accelerated. Yeah, the the exposure is just not is just not the same. Um, and one of the approaches that gets to that, similar to Vision Zero, is complete streets. Um, and so, as we're kind of wrapping up the different policies and programs that impact traffic safety, complete streets is an approach um, that aims to integrate people and place in the planning, design, construction, operation, and maintenance of our transportation networks. Um, and so a complete streets approach, for instance, in Jasmine's case, would say that there needs to be mid-block crossings for people to get directly to that bus stop, um, because that just makes sense. <laughs> and it addresses the human experience on the roadway. Um, and so in the past, you know, 15, 20 years, a lot of jurisdictions, similarly to Vision Zero, have said, okay, we know this is a problem, but let's try to adopt a complete streets policy that says we're going to design roadways in this manner. Um, and that we're also going to, well, looking at roadway design, that kind of connects back to engineering, but um, we're going to do some of the things that we've talked about in this episode. We're going to slow down speed. We're going to slow down speeds. Um, we're going to not prioritize only motor vehicles to get to where they want to go as fast as possible, but we're also going to prioritize people who are walking, biking, driving, and riding transit, um, and also people who may have disabilities. And so this looks at all the different types of ways people can use the street and looks at it from an equity approach of one should not be, you know, over the other, and also looking at the previous, the pers the historical reasonings for why things are the way they are. And so we've talked a lot about the different racial income um, and age barriers as it comes to using the roadway. And so Complete Streets aims to address this and make it overall better and healthier, um, 
Jasmine talked about land use earlier. That's another way of complete streets um, use tries to address the overall design and comfort of a place. I've actually been fortunate enough to work on several complete streets plans um, for different communities, and they are really good initiatives. They We look very closely at very different streets, um, and we'll talk about evaluation, but we use these things called walkability checklists, where we're looking at very, very, very fine details. Are the sidewalks wide enough for two people to pass each other side by side? Um, do they comply with Americans and Disabilities Act requirements? How far is the nearest crossings? Is the street comfortable? Do they have trees? Do they have benches? Are there trash cans? Are there, is the bus stop a sign or does it have a bus shelter? Just various high, highly detailed elements that you don't miss until they're there and you realize, oh, how convenient is it that there's a a bench for me to sit on, especially when you're thinking of elderly persons who might just want to go on a walk to get out of their house, but need a place to rest in the, in that time frame. Um, I think Complete Streets is a wonderful initiative, and I, I think that it always comes down to funding, which we talked about in our in-person episode of now it is on um, elected officials and city councils to put the money in their budgets, whether that's through their um, public works department or their transportation departments to finance certain complete streets projects that redo um, very dangerous roadways and make them more uh, walkable. I yeah, and I think about the funding piece of it, the engineering and road design, things that we've been talking about in this episode cannot happen without the funding. Um, and uh, that investment is so important. And the investment has to match the size of the problem. The way that people are dying and being hurt and being susceptible to really unsafe, unrealistic conditions, the investment has to match that. You know, I think a lot of times as towns are adopting vision zero policies and complete streets policies, they are saying, okay, we'll put, you know, maybe $500,000 here, but they're not going to be able to go that far with capital investments with that money. And it's not going to be able to address all of the high injury areas. Um, and a lot of times places know where their high injury areas are um, and putting money into those, into those spaces. And I think we need to really look at investing like there's no I don't think there's a, such a thing as over investing in the in the safety of these streets and so I think um there's a, a there's a call out there to to do more and to really put the funding where the goals are instead of just having them on paper Speaking of funding, um, we did some looking into President Biden's discretionary budget that he put out. And so we have, we'll have the link to it in our show notes, but it's separated by each of the different departments. And so I took a look at the Department of Transportation. This is not the full budget of the DOT. It's just um, a fraction of their budget. And he has several millions of dollars um, allocated to things that we um, just talked about. In total, it's about $25.6 billion for the DOT and discretionary funds that he plans to um, allocate to capital investment grant programs. As for the FTA, he plans to allocate one building, um, one billion to these build grants, which will help deliver innovative surface infrastructure um, and have those are for the roadway projects and investment in Amtrak. And so 
we see it happening in some ways at the federal level, but it really comes down to a lot of these smaller um, city-owned roads. Yeah, and I think once these um, traffic safety goals and ambitions are made to be a you know a real goal for a lot of the jurisdictions, some of the funding on the federal level um, that is competitive, you mentioned the build grants, um, which actually just like a few weeks ago got renamed to the raise grants, rebuilding American infrastructure with sustainability and equity, but same overall kind of pot of funding for surface infrastructure projects. Um, and so a lot of these are, you know, really competitive and, you know, somewhat dependent on the administration, what types of projects they want to fund um, with the build grants. Um, in the Trump administration, we saw a lot of projects being done in rural areas. Um, and, uh, you know, so it's, we'll, you know, time will tell what types of projects are funded with the, with these raised grants. Um, and even with the American Jobs Plan that includes both creating jobs, but also kind of an overhaul for the roads, bridges, highways, um, and you know public transit, any type of way you can. And this American Jobs Plan is changing all the time. Any type of thing that, I don't know, it just includes everything. But when you think about infrastructure, it's a big piece of it. Um, uh, but we know it's we don't yet know how jurisdictions will receive those funding. Will it be formula grants that you know is just calculation based or competitive? Um, will it be a continuation of funds that they may have already um, been? Um, I'm blanking on the word. Like <laughs> if it's if it's a continuation of funds that they already have access to based on a previous stipulation. Um, you know, and so it, even though I think a lot of jurisdictions are looking forward to having these additional resources, it's not exactly clear how they may receive them and will they have the resources internally to prepare for some of these grant applications if that's the form in which they get them. So I think we covered a lot in this episode. We introduced data that involves pedestrian fatalities, and we didn't even get a chance to discuss the data that involves just driver-to-driver -driver incidences as well. Um, we talked about roadway design or engineering. We talked about education. We talked a lot about enforcement, and we talked about evaluation, and we, we jumped into funding. And so I think it's well fitting for us to close off our season talking about pedestrians and pedestrian safety because we opened up our podcast season one talking about racism and planning and a big portion of that was how highway design and roadway design was used to segregate and isolate neighborhoods and so just coming full circle digging with our themes of equity and justice um in health and safety and transportation. And so I was super glad to have Nemo here with me for season one, us doing this together. We'll be back in the fall for season two. Nemo, you have any closing words? Yeah, I think even though this episode is um, kind of a darker episode, like the content is troubling. We look outside, we see these issues, we experience these issues. Um, on a daily basis, whether it's when we're driving, walking, you know, taking the metro. Um, I do think there is a lot to look forward to. I do think, um, you know, we can look back and see how things like Complete Streets and Vision Zero was not even a thing of the past in a lot of places. And we can see how much culture change has happened um, over, you know, two decades. And so the progress might be slow, um, but I do think there's hope that, 
the progress can continue um, and that, you know, we can see a better future. Um, well, thanks for joining us both this season and for our final episode of the season. Um, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the number four degrees pod. Um, and you can also listen to our episodes on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, Google Podcast, um, wherever you get your podcast. And we look forward to chatting with y'all next season. Peace out, y'all.